We are continuing in 2 Samuel. If you want to open up your Bibles um, to 2 Samuel 12, if you don't have one, there should be one um, in front of you. And that's on page 245 in the Bible uh, below the seat in front of you. 2 Samuel 12. And when you get there, if you're able to, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler to the rich Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went into his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. 
Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and sent them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are just really, really thankful to belong to you. Just as we sung these wonderful songs of worship and we were able to rehearse the good news of the gospel together through song, God, it just reminds all of us of your amazing and incredible love for your people. That you are, in fact, a good, good father. That you and you alone are worthy of our worship and our praise because it's through Christ alone that we've been made right with God and that we've become the children of God. It is not about what we've done. It's about what you have done for the people you love. So God, this morning, we just, we just revel in the good news of the gospel. We are a grateful, grateful people. And God, we pray as we now move to consider 2 Samuel chapter 12, that Lord, you would help remind us even further of your grace, of your unmerited love, of your favor for your people. In particular, as we consider how even though David had sinned greatly, you still pursued him, you still blessed him, you still had a future and a hope for him. Lord, I pray that we today would just be overwhelmed by your grace and your kindness toward us. So God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you minister through your word to your people? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and grab a seat. It's great to be with you. It's Always a joy to worship God with the people of God on the Lord's Day. It's my favorite day of the week. I'm sure it's many of your favorite days of the week. And they don't pay me to say that. So it's just truly my favorite day of the week. Uh, the sermon title this morning is The Kindness of Getting Caught. 
The Kindness of Getting Caught. If you like that sermon title, it was mine. If you turn out to not like it so much, you should know Ryan gave it to me. It was his idea. But I think it's a great title. That's why I was willing to go with it. uh, Because I think it's going to capture really well uh, what we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. As we see again the kindness of God being put on display in the life of David. But in a way that we often don't think of the grace of God or the kindness of God. So I think the title will become very fitting throughout this sermon. To bring us up to speed though, in the last chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David, the man after God's own heart, the king over God's people, spiritually and morally face plants. Right? He ends up eyeing a woman, lusting after her, and committing adultery with her. And then in an effort to cover up his horrible sin of adultery, he adds to that the sin of murder and he actually kills her husband. He has him killed in battle in an attempt to manage his sin and to cover his sin so that he won't be discovered. And when the chapter ends, David gets the girl and they have a baby. And it's shocking as a reader and it's a bit infuriating But as I noted at the end of last week's sermon, the final line leads us away from thinking that this is one of those and they lived happily ever after kinds of stories. Here's the last line in chapter 11. This is verse 27. It says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So so while David may have been trying to hide his sin and cover his sin and then ignore his sin and just hope he could leave it in the rear rear view mirror of his life, God wasn't going to let him do that. God would not let David get away with anything. And so chapter 12 begins where that story ends and it begins now with God himself confronting David. I want you to notice right here at the outset that David's confession that comes along in verse 13 and David's spiritual renewal that we see in the rest of this chapter was initiated by God himself. Look at verse 1. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. God is the one who initiated this this process of chasing down this runaway child of God, this renegade king. Now, chapter 11, you should know, uh, ended with a period of mourning for Bathsheba as she's mourning over the death of her husband Uriah, followed by the birth of their son. And what that means is that there is at least probably nine months, maybe upwards of 12 months of time that have passed from the end of chapter 11 and David murdering Uriah to the events now of chapter 12 and the Lord coming and knocking on his door and confronting him through the prophet Nathan. And so what that means is that this man David, who we're told in 1 Samuel that once the Spirit of God came upon him, the Spirit of God never departed from him. He has the Spirit of God, he's a child of God, and yet for a year of his life, he's harboring his sin. 
He just won't come forward with it. He, he thinks that it's buried in the past and he doesn't want to say anything about it. And he feels like he's covered it. He feels like he's gotten away with it and everything is okay, but it's actually not. And so the Lord steps in and he comes and he confronts David. And family, the first thing that we need to see here this morning is that the very act of God confronting David in his sin is grace. It is the grace of God on display in David's life. And this leads us to our first point this morning. Grace leads us to confession. We don't get there on our own. Grace, the grace of God, the power of God is what leads us to confession. Now there are two psalms that are written by David, that are written from the other side of confession and repentance. And it could be that both of them were written in light of this episode in David's life. Uh, Psalm 51 most certainly is, the superscription on that psalm is telling us that that was written after what happened with Uriah the Hittite. But the other one is Psalm 32. A lot of scholars speculate that that too could have been written on the other side of David's repentance with David, or with uh, Uriah and his murder there. But I want you to notice how Psalm 32 begins, and then we want to talk about the grace of God here in leading David to confession. Here's the first four verses of Psalm 32. David writes this. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For, or because, now he's going to explain to you where this blessing is found, at least in part. Verse 3, for, because, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So here's what David's saying in Psalm 32. He's saying, when I was harboring my sin, when I kept my mouth silent, when I wouldn't confess what I had done, it was taking a toll on me. It was eating me alive on the inside. Now, oftentimes, when we sin... We're afraid of the consequences if we're found out. And so, so, so we're, we're afraid to confess our sin. Right? We talked about this a little bit last week. If, if I were to tell somebody this, that person's going to think differently of me. Or if, if this comes to light, I could get in a lot of trouble. And so there's fear and we don't want to confess our sin. But, but here's the thing. We seldom factor in the consequences of not confessing our sin. We're just thinking about what might happen to me if I do confess my sin. But family, there are serious consequences of not confessing your sin, and they're actually greater. The first one is what we talked about last week, that in order to continue to hide our sin, it requires us to commit further sin. Right? Now I have to lie. Now I have to deceive. In David's case, now I have to murder the husband. Otherwise, he will know that this is my child, and everything will come out. And so... The first thing is if we don't confess our sin and just deal with it, it leads us to other sin. But now from this week, we can add to that the further consequence that David describes here in Psalm 32. It's the internal 
turmoil that you experience from unconfessed sin. How does David describe it? He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Unconfessed sin is not easy to live with. As a Christian, there's the gnawing guilt that you feel over what you've done. It's a heavy burden to bear. John Bunyan famously in The Pilgrim's Progress depicts this with the main character Christian by this gigantic sack that he's carrying throughout the story on his back. And when he's finally freed of his sin and he's forgiven of his sin, he's unburdened from this gigantic burden that he was carrying. It's the weight of sin and guilt that works on your conscience. It's a heavy burden to bear. You could add to that the anxiety and the fear that you carry of being found out. Right? As as long as you're hiding the sin and you're trying to manage the sin and you're trying to cover the sin, you're stressed and you're, you're dealing with this burden of anxiety and this overwhelming sense of fear that somehow, someway, this still might get out. And then what's going to happen to me? And this puts spiritual and psychological pressure on you which oftentimes manifests itself in physical ways too. David's saying my bones, my very bones in my body were actually wasting away. And the physical manifestations of this are oftentimes things like stress and lack of sleep and weight loss or weight gain or ulcers or increased blood pressure and on and on you could go from the anxiety of hiding your sin. In short, I'll say it to you this way, living with unconfessed sin in your life robs you of joy and peace in your life. You're not going to have it. And you're going to have to go around day after day just plastering a a fake smile on your face Because inside you're, again, overwhelmed with guilt and anxiety. This is why in Psalm 51, verse 12, David famously writes this. He says, after he confesses his sin, he says to the Lord, Restore to me the what? The joy of thy salvation. Because he he was saved, but he could not experience the joy of the salvation that God had given to him. No, day and night, the hand of God was heavy on David. The Holy Spirit just working on David's heart and on his mind. Therefore, as God comes to the palace through the prophet Nathan on this day, and he confronts David in his sin, family, I want to tell you this is an act of sheer grace and kindness and mercy on the part of God. Where God is hoping to bring David to his senses and forgive David of his sin and relieve David of his burden. And in the same way, whenever God exposes your sin, you have to see that as an act of kindness, as an act of grace on God's part. That he is actually through exposing your sin, he is working for your good. God is not against your happiness. God is not against your joy. God is not against you being blessed in your life. No, God is the author of all of those things. And he knows that you harboring sin in your life is undermining joy and peace and blessing. And so he comes to you 
He doesn't let you stay in this place of hiding your sin forever. How does God expose David's sin here? Well, the short answer is he does it through his word. In this case, it's a parable from his prophet Nathan. Let's reread it starting in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. We'll stop there. Nathan baits and David bites. This is a leading story. This is an intentional parable. Nathan comes marching into the palace with knowledge of David's sin, presumably given to him from the Lord. And with a well-crafted word from the Lord to help David see the gravity of what he has done. And the story is very obvious and it's very clear and it's very egregious. There is a very poor person in the city who, who has done everything in his power just to sustain one little precious lamb. And he, he, he has done so much for this lamb that this man can't even bring himself to kill the lamb. It's more like a daughter now. It, it eats at his table and sleeps in his bed in his arms. And it's become like family to him because it's really all he's got. And when the poor man has a traveler come, or when the rich man rather has a traveler come to him, rather than taking an animal of his own herd, he goes to his neighbor, steals his lamb, puts it to death, and feeds the traveler. This rich man is heartless and pitiless toward his poor neighbor. And the story has its intended effect. Because as we read, David's anger is what? It is greatly kindled. As the king in Israel, he is the ultimate judge in Israel. And he passes judgment swiftly in this moment. He's enraged that he has a citizen in his kingdom among the people of God who would have the audacity to be this calloused and unloving. And so he shouts, this man deserves to die. Now, according to the law of Moses, if you were to steal an animal from your neighbor, that offense was not punishable by death. Restitution was required, hence David's further statement, he shall restore the lamb fourfold. But David's inclination here is correct. David is able to see how awful and how treacherous this man's sin actually is. Yeah, it maybe was just a lamb that he took. But in taking this man's lamb, he took everything from this guy. And it's even worse because he didn't have to do it. He was rich. He had everything unto himself. And now, family, the stage is set 
for King David to actually see his own sin for what it really is. Verse 7, look at your Bible. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Gotcha. That's what just happened. This is the gotcha moment. You are the man. Nathan's words must have been like a jolt of electricity through David's body. The air must have been sucked out of the room instantaneously. Goosebumps covered his body, I'm sure, in that moment. Chills going up his spine. As he hears Nathan say to him, you're the guy. You're the man in the story. You're the one who deserves to die. You're the one who has done the unthinkable. Nathan now goes on to explain why David is not just the man in the story. He's actually infinitely worse than the man in the story. Look at verse 7 again. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, he says, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And here it comes. He says, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So what's God's message? In a nutshell, God says this. He says, David, I gave you everything. I literally gave you everything. I made you the king. You were a shepherd. I made you the king. I saved you from Saul. I gave you his kingdom. I gave you everything that belonged to him. I just transferred it to you. And he says, and and I was intending to do so much more for you. You remember from chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant, God is saying, listen, I've got such greater plans for you, David. I'm going to blow your mind. And here God's reminding me, saying, and if all of that was too little, I had so much more that I intended to do for you, David. You had everything. And that just heightens the question that God then asks him. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. How is David guilty of despising the word of the Lord? Well, at the very least, David broke the sixth commandment, do not murder. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. The tenth commandment, do not covet your neighbor's wife. So David knew the law of the Lord. He knew the word of the Lord and he despised it. So that doesn't matter to me. In this moment, I'm going to do what I want. And so Nathan now spells out the consequences of David's actions. Look at verse 10. Nathan continues, he says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Why? For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. 
Drop down to verse 14. Nevertheless, God says, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Wow. This is heavy. This whole section reminds us of the biblical principle that is very simply stated this way. You reap what you sow. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He says, look at how he starts it. Do not be deceived. Because here's what's ha- what happens is we have sin in front of us. We have that temptation to sin. And we think to ourselves, I'm not going to have to experience any serious consequences from this. I'm going to be the exception. I'm going to get away with this. And that's what the enemy tells us. And if you're a Christian, the enemy's really crafty because he gives you all this stuff about, well, you know, God's a God of grace and he'll forgive you and he'll give you second chances and this will all be behind you. You can get away with it. Just do it. And Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not mocked. And family, if we were to pass a microphone around here today and say, anybody got any stories of reaping what you've sown in your life? We'd be here till next Sunday. Because many of us who have walked with the Lord can attest to this. The consequences that have come before we were Christians for sure, many even after we've become Christians, as a result of our sin, the way it's impacted people, the destruction it's had in our own lives, in our families, in relationships, in business, etc. But I want you to notice here in this chapter how directly the consequences of David's sin align with the sin itself. I don't know if you saw it as we read this, but check this out. David brought violence to somebody else's family. Now God says the sword will never depart from your household. There's violence coming into your home and into your family now. David slept with another man's wife. Now his own wives will be with another man. He brought death to Uriah's household. Now death will enter his own family. I mean, do you see that? The consequence and the sin. David is truly and fully here reaping what he's sown. Now, it's not always tit for tat with every sin that we commit in our lives. Like if you steal $500 from somebody else, well, you know what? You got about seven days until you're going to get $500 stolen from you. It's not always tit for tat, this for that. Indeed, family, sometimes in his unfathomable grace, God doesn't bring observable consequences to us in the wake of the sins that we have committed. And that is sheer grace and mercy. But examples like this one in David's life that are recorded for us in Holy Scripture, that are making the connection so undeniable and so clear, exist there to warn us. To not be deceived. God will not be mocked. If you choose to live in your life sowing to the flesh, 
following the desires of your heart, wherever that leads you, rather than sowing to the Spirit and yielding to the Word of God, you've been warned. God is not going to be mocked. You will reap what you have sown. Sin has consequences. And so we see here that through this prophetic word, God exposes David's sin for what it truly is. And he reveals that there are consequences for sin. And it cuts David to the heart. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12. We famously read this verse. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You guys, this is one of the great effects that God's word has on God's people. God's word is uniquely able to pinpoint your sin. And to show you your sin for what it truly is. To expose that to you. And church, this is one of the many reasons why we have to be a people that are constantly exposing our hearts to the word of God. Through the preaching of God's word. Through the reading of God's word. Through the speaking of God's word to one another. Through the singing of God's word. Through the praying of God's word, we have to constantly expose God's word to our hearts. Because it is through the word of God, which is called the sword of the spirit, that the Holy Spirit has a precision instrument in his hand. And he can speak to you and identify sin in your life just as clearly as Nathan spoke to David through that parable. And aha, bingo, I'm the man. I'm the man. That comes to us through the word of God. And so to be a person who ignores the word of God is to be a person who is left without hope. I mean, look what it does to David. Verse 13, church, look at verse 13. The the use of the word of God, it brings David to his senses and it leads him to confession. Here we go, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Last week we talked about how whenever we sin, there are two choices in front of us at that moment. I can either confess my sin to the Lord and to others if necessary, or I can conceal my sin. I can try to cover it and hide it and manage it. Proverbs 28.13 tells us how those two choices work themselves out. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will what? Will what? not prosper. Okay, it's not going to work out for you, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. David chose to conceal his sin, and as we talked about, it led to more sin and the misery of a guilty conscience, but now David is brought to his senses. He confesses his sin. He finally just says it. He comes clean with it. I have sinned against the Lord. Here's how he says it in Psalm 32 verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then what happened? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's how he says it in Psalm 51. He begins that psalm and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David now has chosen confession. David now has done hiding. David is bringing the sin out to the light. He's seen it for what it is and he's done hiding. And the moment he does that, you guys, it's instantaneous in the text. The moment he does that, he begins to experience mercy. The second his lips stop confessing, Nathan starts talking. And what does Nathan say to him? Verse 13, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Immediately, he confesses his sin and there is mercy that begins flowing into David's life. Now what's incredible is that according to the law, both adultery and murder were capital offenses. What the law said is that if you do these things, you will be killed. But notice here, the Lord puts David's sin away so that he no longer had to be put to death. Creates an interesting question. How could God just do that? I mean, does does the Lord just look at people that he likes like David and say, oh man, you did something really bad and then kind of pick up the carpet here and just... I'm just going to sweep that in there and we're just not going to talk about that and don't worry about it. You don't have to deal with the consequences. How does God do this? How does he not punish David to the full extent of the law? Wouldn't that be an injustice? The answer to that question is this. The same way that he puts away our sin through the death of his one and only son, Jesus Christ who according to Paul became sin for us. When Jesus hung on that cross, God placed the sins of all of his people on his son. Jesus became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Romans chapter 3, toward the end of the chapter, the apostle Paul deals with this very question. How can God in the Old Testament be considered just when all of these people were sinning and Jesus hadn't come yet? How could God just ignore all of that sin in the Old Testament? Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or made right before God by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it's through Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation or an acceptable sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. And what was the purpose of God doing that? In part, here it is. This was to show God's righteousness. That there is no unrighteousness in God. There's no injustice in God. So putting our sins on Jesus was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, some translations say patience, what was God doing? He passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's a sophisticated argument from the Apostle Paul. But what he's saying is, listen, just like you and me are 2,000 years removed from the cross, And yet God in his infinite wisdom was able to say, you know what, in 2000 and something, 
Joe Rupp now is going to become my son. He's going to put his faith in Jesus and turn from his sins. And so when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, the sins that Joe would commit in the future were borne by Jesus on the cross at that moment 2,000 years ago. In the exact same way, Paul is saying God was able to pass over the sins that were committed in the Old Testament of those who had faith in God, knowing that there would come a day that his son would come to the earth and die on the cross and those sins would be paid for there. And therefore there is no unrighteousness with God. Every sin that has ever been committed in the history of the world will be paid for, either by the one who committed it on the day of judgment or at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago where he became sin for you and for me who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so David was able to hear these words of grace. The Lord has put your sin away. You shall not die. It's amazing. It's the same truth that all of us are basking in every Sunday when we come and we sing songs like Amazing Grace. It's grace upon grace, family. But here's what we need to understand. Grace does not mean no consequences. This is what we see in this next tragic section. You could be tempted to think, and nobody would blame you for it, That because God forgave David, he would give David a pass on the consequences that he told him were coming. In other words, it it, it could be thought of that, that maybe God was just saying, David, you've done all of these sins and here's what's coming for you as like a warning. And then David comes to his senses and says, I've sinned. And he confesses his sin and God says, okay, now I don't actually have to go through with this. You don't have to experience any of the consequences. But the upcoming chapters are going to show us that violence will be experienced in David's house. And in chapter 16, we're going to find David's rebellious son sleeping with David's concubines in a tent that is pitched on top of the roof of the palace in broad daylight, just as the Lord said. And here in these next verses, we see that the child that is born to David and Bathsheba dies of illness in his infancy. So God forgave David, but his sins still had consequences. Look at verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Now that's a very hard verse to read. But family, this verse just makes plain what must be true. Ultimately, whether directly or indirectly, all sickness, all suffering, and all death must be allowed by God. Because he could have prevented it. He could have done something to intervene in that situation. Now, does this mean that God takes delight in sickness or suffering or death? Absolutely not. Ezekiel famously says, speaking on behalf of the Lord, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. We know from the Gospels that Jesus wept over death and suffering. So it doesn't mean that, but it does mean this. It does mean that God has a purpose and a plan in it. That through all suffering... And even in death, God has a plan and a purpose. 
Indeed, it is only because God is in control of all things, including sickness and death, that you and I can cling to the amazing promise found in Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things, including suffering, including sickness, even death, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You can only believe that if all things are under God's ultimate control. And it is only because we believe that God is sovereign, that he truly does rule and reign over everything, that even the devil is on a leash. It is only because we believe that that we find the courage to pray for healing and deliverance from our trials and our hardships. And so as hard as it can be for us to get our minds around the fact that God could have caused things to work out differently in our lives, it's much harder to imagine our lives being outside of God's control. There would be no hope. There would be no comfort. There would be no promise in our suffering. So this child is sick. And the child does die. Look at verse 16. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat the food or eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Then he went to his own house and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I want you to notice here the Evidence of the renewal of David's spiritual life. Once he confessed his sin to the Lord. And once he'd been forgiven of his sins. Notice that David is now comfortable praying. He's comfortable pleading before the Lord and fasting. We also find him worshiping in the house of the Lord. And even surrendering to God's will concerning his child. You've probably noticed in your own life how unconfessed sin keeps you away from the Lord. Whenever we are living in sin and we don't want to deal with it and we're covering it, we tend to avoid church, right? We don't want to show up to church. We don't want to have spiritual conversations with people. We're not comfortable praying. We're not comfortable reading the Bible. We we just want to kind of hide out and get away from all of the things of the Lord. But family, once we confess our sins... Once we get to that point, spiritual renewal flows into your life. In Psalm 51, David says this, starting in verse 10. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then check out what he says. God, if you do this, if you renew me spiritually, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. God, if you'll renew me, now I'll start sharing your word with people. Now I'll start singing your praises and worshiping you. That's what happens. We confess our sins. We're forgiven of our sins. The Lord begins to cleanse us and renew our heart and restore our joy. And we come back to life spiritually. This is beginning to happen for David here. David is heartbroken over his child, but notice he's not angry with God. I would suggest to you that David at this moment knows now more clearly than ever that he doesn't deserve God's favor and blessing. That God doesn't owe David anything. And yet God has forgiven his sin. And God has given him a future and a hope. And that's enough for David. What do I mean a future and a hope? Look at that last line there in verse 23. He says, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? He says, can I bring him back again? And then he says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. You know, Old Testament believers had a much foggier understanding of what happens after you die than we have on this side of the cross. But notice that David does believe in life beyond the grave. He says, I shall go to him. Now we get a final glimpse into God's plan and purposes regarding the death of this child. We know where David is going to go upon his death. He's a child of God. So he will go and be with God. But notice he's confident that when he gets there, his son who has died will already be there. And so while the death of David's son is tragic, God brings out good ends from horrible means. God did have a plan for that little boy. And it was for him to skip all of the heartaches and the challenges of life in this world and go immediately into God's presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And so far from having a calloused heart toward this child or evil intentions for this child, perhaps God's feelings for this baby are better captured by these words, regarding King Jeroboam's son who died under similar circumstances. Listen to 1 Kings 14, 13. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, speaking of this infant child, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. That sounds horrible. He's the only one that comes to the grave. Listen, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. What an amazing verse. That God was pleased with this baby, loved this baby, and actually the baby died and God brought him to heaven. So David here moves forward with hope. And this is the final idea and we're going to wrap up in this chapter. That God pro- or grace promises us a hopeful future. I don't know if you saw this when we first read the chapter, but the chapter from this point takes a serious turn and it's an upward turn everything becomes so much more positive at this moment 
David here is now found comforting his wife, which speaks positively of where their relationship is at at this moment. And then God blesses David and Bathsheba with another son. They called his name Solomon. This son would be the heir to David's throne and the person who all of God's promises that he made to David in chapter 7 are going to now flow directly through. It's impossible to not read this and sense that God is communicating at this moment to David, David, all is not lost. Your failures are not final. We learn here that God can bring beauty from ashes. And if you're having any trouble seeing that, God spells it out really clearly for us in the rest of the paragraph in verses 24 and 25. It says, And the Lord loved him, speaking of the baby, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So the chapter began with Nathan being dispatched by the Lord to bring a message of God's displeasure over David's sin. But now Nathan is being dispatched by the Lord to bring a message to David about how much God loves his son, Solomon. This is why Solomon is given another name, Jedidiah. The word Jedidiah, the name Jedidiah, means loved by the Lord. So Nathan comes and says, hey David, you need to know God really loves this son, has a plan for this son, and the boy gets the name loved by the Lord. And so the chapter begins moving in an upward trajectory and it ends on another high note. If you remember, chapter 11 began with a war between Israel and the Ammonites. That's how this whole episode in David's life got off the ground. Here's verse 1 of chapter 11. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So Joab and the army sieged Rabbah, but David was idle and possibly out of place at the palace. But now we need to notice that on the other side of David's sin and confession and restoration, Joab and the army are now given victory over these enemies. Look at verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. But then something interesting happens. Rather than just fully going in and capturing the city, he sends word to David. He says, David, you need to gather some more troops and you need to come and you need to lead the final charge. Otherwise, this city's going to get named after me. David, this is your rightful place. You need to come here and do this. Look at verse 26, or rather 29, excuse me. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of that city a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So chapter 12 and this episode in David's life end on a high note. Total victory over the Ammonites. And David and Bathsheba are blessed with a son. And what a great son he will prove to be. Family, the ending of chapter 12 is meant to encourage us to trust that there is blessing on the other side of confession and repentance. 
The enemy will do everything in his power to keep you from coming clean, to keep you covering your sin and hiding your sin rather than walking away from it. Because he wants you to live your life filled with guilt and shame and fear. And he wants you to make a mess of your life. But God offers you freedom, joy, and a hopeful future. So while it's true that our sins often have lasting and hurtful consequences, it is equally true that the Lord promises to put away our sin and bring beauty from ashes if we will confess our sin and forsake them. Therefore, all hope is never lost for the child of God. Amen.